Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, not bad, thanks, John. Excellent. You've written half a magazine this week. <laughs> things. It feels that way. It does. And, you know, we're getting the most out of you before you leave us. I know. This is your valedictory podcast. It is. I apologise to all of my loyal fans. Am <laughs> 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 my, my not so loyal fans? But yeah, uh, tomorrow is my last day. Oh, it's a very sad day. Five sad and a half day. years. Where are you off to? I will be heading to the business desk at the Telegraph so people can follow me over there. That's a well-trodden route for IC journalists, isn't it? It is. Uh, anyway, good luck with Thank that. You. But we're going to try and squeeze the most out of you that we possibly can before you go. I know you're writing a large number of write-ups for our forthcoming AIM 100. I am, yes. Mostly across the pharma side of things, or is yeah. that retail as well you're looking at? A couple at? of retailers in there, but the vast majority are actually healthcare. A lot of small drug developers on AIM, so... Indeed. Uh, and you've got a couple of big healthcare stories that, that lead the news section this week that we'll discuss. One, good. Mm-hmm. And one, bad. One, not well, so one good. extremely bad. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, and then we're going to talk about another quite shocking tale of woe, which is Debenhams, which, yep. you've, uh, which is, looks like it's come to a, a stock market conclusion to neatly wrap up your time at the Investors Chronicle. Certainly, from a shareholder point of view, it's, uh, it's the end of the road, but yeah. obviously the company will continue uh, in the immediate term. And uh, then to balance out that, that horrific retail story, we're going to talk about a good news story from retail, which is Tesco, mm. which, uh, which had results this week, which, did. Which, uh, which were good. Yeah. Where should we start? Let's start with uh, let's start with pharmaceuticals. Let's start with good news. Yeah, let's start with GSK. GSK. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Uh, it's been a really uh, interesting time for GSK. People who follow the stock, and I'm sure plenty of listeners do because um, it's very popular, will know that they are sort of trying to tread this path into eventually splitting their business in half. One half will focus much more on consumer healthcare, and the other will focus more on innovative drug development. On the drug development side of things, they have, I mean, for over a decade now, have this division called Vive Healthcare, which has been dedicated to developing HIV drugs. Uh, and this week, they had a second two-drug regimen, which is basically just two drugs rolled into one, um, treatment uh, approved by the US regulator, which is a really big deal, because if you can get it approved in the world's biggest healthcare market, chances are that you know, you'll get it approved in, in other jurisdictions as well. What does it do? It's it's a really interesting one because it is quite specific. It's called Devato and uh, it can basically treat brand new HIV patients who don't have a treatment history with the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this means compared to 20 years ago when you were first diagnosed as an HIV positive patient, you'd be on all sorts of drugs. You'd be taking multiple drugs many times a day just to try and increase your chances of survival and a long life. Now, this two-drug regimen, because they've been able to effectively combine drugs into one single tablet per day, that's all you have to do. You don't have to have a treatment history. You don't have to prove that you have reacted to certain drugs one way or other drugs another. Um, And it's just a really, really simple treatment course for people, which means that they should have, you know, the best quality of life out there as a brand new HIV positive patient. So, So it's not a cure... But, no. but it's, it's more a sort of control yeah. type drug. Yeah, and it's much, it's just much simpler. There's a lot less aggravation, fewer side effects because you're not com- taking all these drugs which will, yes, work, but possibly also react with each other and cause all sorts of side effects. This is just a much more straightforward way of treating patients, which means that they can hopefully have, you know, the best quality of life possible. It's quite interesting, HR. I mean, one of your... One of your- best pieces of work for us that you actually won quite a major award for a Wincott was yeah. was the Finding the Cure series. Yeah. And HIV does feel like one of those diseases that 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 medicine has really had a massive impact on 
on uh, on really really helping patients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are certain diseases, obviously, within the oncology space that are getting much closer to that as well. But HIV, because there are only certain forms of that disease, whereas cancer, as we're finding out, you know, there are many many thousands of versions of that disease. And it, and it was cancer that kind of triggered triggered the idea to write this finding the cure feature because you often read headlines cure for cancer discovered, mm-hmm. and we we kind of just wanted to really put some some reality. Uh, on those those claim those tabloid claims that you often see, so, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and actually work out which which companies listed on the market were, were actually making progress. But we've looked at various diseases, HIV being one of them. Yeah, and Alzheimer's being another. Um, you know, all of these very sort of um, affecting diseases, I should say, that have potent well were once fatal, not necessarily anymore. But um, yeah, how how much closer are we getting to a cure? Devato is not a cure. It also follows another drug that they had approved that also isn't a cure either. But that one it does apply to patients that have had a treatment history. So it's trying to find the most personalised version of medicine that has the best efficacy with the fewest side effects. How big an opportunity is this for uh, Glaxo? What does this mean for for their numbers? Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean... The idea that these drugs are blockbusters, and if people are unfamiliar with that term, it basically means that you could target up to a billion dollars in sales per annum, um, has yet to really be tested. And there aren't really firm numbers out in the market about what this might mean. But it's going to be a big revenue earner for them. Um, they wouldn't be pouring this much R&D into Vive if it, if it wasn't. I mean, if we go back, actually, one of the first big pieces I wrote for the magazine, full stop, was um, was when there were all sorts of rumours circulating that Vive might be floated separately to GSK because it was seen as valuable that it could be standalone. Um, they eventually decided to keep it within. It's kind of been the jewel in its crown, I have to say, particularly in the years that it had focused much more on consumer and it you know, faced accusations that innovation and drug development had sort of taken a back seat. That's no longer the case, but even so, Vive has been a constant for them. And this is proving that all of that work is, is coming good. And that's what you know, healthcare investors want to see. Indeed, and that's always the big worry for these big pharma groups that, that the pipeline runs dry. Yeah. Uh, and, and GSK's disproving that at the moment. Yeah, that it runs dry and that you haven't got anything to show for all of that investment. Um, I think profits and pharma is always a really interesting kind of discussion because it throws up all sorts of ethical kind of questions about profiteering off, off people's health. Um, but, you know... I think having spoken to many chief executives, a lot of them would say that, you know, they're not running a charity. The idea is that investors are helping to pour money into the R&D pot, which helps to develop these life changing medicines and treatments and improve patients' lives. And so. down the road, of course, those 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 drugs lose patents and they become generic. So the rest of the world gets the benefit at some point in the future. At some point in the future, right. And hopefully those drugs also are enough to generate a return that investors can be rewarded for their initial upfront payments. So it's all a virtuous circle in an ideal world. Mm. Of course, things go wrong along the way, but the piece of news from GSK this week is kind of exactly what you want to see happen. Still buyers? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, the potential uh, for Vive to be spun off or the idea that it could be spun off. That actually did happen with Reckitt Benkisser with the other drug on the, uh, the the front or the other drug company on the front page of the news section, which is Indivior. Spun out of Reckitt Benkisser probably what, half a decade ago, something like that. Uh, just, now. yeah, 2014. Yeah, half a decade ago. Mm-hmm. There you go. That was a good guess. It was. Um, and their problem has been generics. Yeah. Um, they've got another problem that, that seems to have emerged this week. Yeah, it, and this is a big one. Pretty much ever since the day it was spun out, we have been bearish on Indivia. And it's because, as you say, from the day it was spun out, it 
just faced a whole host of generic issues. Um, the main thing that it does is it develops treatments that are de- designed to try and get opioid addicts weaned. Um, that's the simplest way to explain it. Um, and they have this sort of flagship product, which is known as Suboxone. And shortly after they were spun out, they had developed a sort of second generation version of that product called Suboxone Film. Um, Suboxone originally was a tablet. It was sold in bottles. And the Suboxone Film was as it sounds, it was um, not sold in bottles, it was not in tablet form, although it effectively did the same thing. Um, And they had to come up with second generation, like most drug companies, because the original one was going to lose its exclusivity rights and Mm. be subject to a lot more generic copies that were going to be cheaper um, and sales were going to be eroded. And that's not an unusual story in pharmaceuticals. It's just that the sort of, I suppose, the redesign on these products wasn't particularly compelling enough to convince physicians to go for the new product as opposed to just prescribing the cheaper generic. I was going to say that presumably there's a big price differential between the two. Absolutely. Um, so it's always, whenever you're developing a, a second gen product, you always have to think about, well, how are we going to market this to convince the physicians to prescribe the, the new one that's ultimately going to be more expensive than the now generic um, and tell them that it's going to be that much more effective. What, what was the uh, apparent advantage of the film product over the, the previous uh, delivery mechanism? Yeah, it's a good question because this is exactly now what the Department for Justice in the US and a court in West Virginia is disputing. So at the time in Divya, um, one of the big sort of um, advantages that they said Suboxone film had, and this is why I mentioned the tablet thing, is because it was a lot more sort of tamper-proof. So for having it in your homes around children, they call it the paediatric safety profile. And what that means is it was, you know, because it was sealed and wasn't in these bottles which you could just unscrew and take the tablets, if you had children around or whatever, um, there was a lot less um, chance of an accident, basically. Um, And this was a big thing that they sort of used in their marketing of the product to physicians. Um, The department of Indivia says that they have lots of evidence, I should say that up front, to, you know, back up these claims. The Centre for Disease Control, a whole host of government agencies in the US also backed them at the time over that claim. Uh, But the Department for Justice now is saying that they're not quite sure that that was true. So what that they have indicted them on is that they basically made fraudulent claims about that product and did so through the marketing of it. Yeah, that's a pretty horrific charge list that that, yeah. that, that you lead the uh, the piece with, uh, which I, I I must add, individual are disputing. Yes, they completely. deny all allegations and they are determined to fight it in the courts. That's what we should say straight away. Um, I spoke to a rep for the company yesterday and he seems fairly confident that they will be able to um, put up a good defence. So it'll be interesting to see how much evidence they are able to produce that suggests everything they did was above board and ultimately true. Um, but, you know, in the short term, you still have to look at the facts of life which is that this is going to be yet another costly legal case for them and they're sort of running out of time and money to keep fighting on all of these legal fronts i was going to say this sounds like it could be an expensive uh case to fight for for individual yeah i mean it depends how long it drags on but they themselves said in a statement yesterday that these kinds of cases can take up to 12 months to even be heard lawyers are expensive yeah and it's interesting because this case has actually been going on the reason that wreck is sort of in the picture is that actually this investigation was opened in 2013, a year before Indivia was even spun out of Reckitt Benkiser. And uh, and so Reckitt Benkiser have, were forced to put out a statement yesterday as well, saying that they are not the ones being indicted.
it, it is in Divya. But well, their shares fell, didn't they? They did it, fall. It, they did. That. They fell about six percent. Um, but Reckitt says that they will cooperate with authorities in any way that they need to. But ultimately, they are not the ones being charged. I mean, they, they spun it out because this was a, a drag on the company. I, I remember yeah. I used to cover Reckitt at the time, and, and and it was as though you were, even though they were a consolidated group at the time, you know, they were essentially reporting two companies. Yeah. There. Um, and uh, yeah, Indivia was almost secondary, so it ceased to be part of the Reckitt story, and I think. As I was covering it, they were trying to distance themselves from it even yeah. then. But it's 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 quite surprising to see them still caught up in this. Uh, yeah, it's this a company. real it's a mess for them. Um, we like I say, we've been bearish on the stock for a long time, but we did another big kind of bear analysis on them in mid Feb, and unfortunately uh, for them, but good good news from our point of view is that they're now down about seventy or eighty percent on that tip. So it was a sharp fall. That I have to say, even I don't think I saw that coming quite as dramatically, although the outlook for the company has always been pretty shoddy. Yeah, I must admit, I was always sceptical of, of their ability to fight the generic uh, competition that was coming along. I felt it looked like a one-drug company mm. um, and probably needed to do a bit more to... To, to reassure investors that there was there was somewhere for it to grow into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they do have an extensive R and D operation, but they have sort of limited themselves to this one particular specialism. Um, and who knows? I mean, maybe behind the scenes they thought that they would be snapped up by yeah. another big pharma company if they stuck to that specialism. But I suspect the big farmers are looking at them and thinking, "We don't need any more legal cases than we've already got." Thank you. No. Um, well, I mean, one thing. One thing I also perhaps underestimated when underestimated when they were floated was was the scale of the opioid problem in, in mm. the US, which mm. I think has really only become apparent over the last couple of years. So you'd think that's a good market for, for individual. Here, here's my scepticism with opioid is, I don't deny it's a huge challenge in the US and it's one that's garnered a lot more publicity in the last couple of years. You're right. Not all of these patients, compare it to, say, a cancer patient, want to get better. Mm. This is always my thing with them, and it's a, it's a question I've regularly put to management, is how do you capture the patient population when an awful lot of them are addicts and don't want or don't know how to help themselves off of that particular predicament? If you're diagnosed with cancer or you're diagnosed with HIV, you want to treat it, you want to get better, or you want to try and find a way to have a life that is as normal as possible. I'm not sure that opioid addicts necessarily fall quite into line on that front. And I always thought that that was going to be one of their biggest challenges. And even today, I think it's one of the most unspoken things when it comes to Indivia. Mm. It's, it's a sad. It's a sad story, really, all round. Um, yeah. Except for your sell tip, which which has <laughs> yeah. come good, uh, which you know means that you will win our sell tip of the year this year, probably Harry, but won't be around to collect it. Oh, I might come back to collect it. <laughs> sure, you will, and win the quiz. Here's hoping. Yeah, no, we, your coverage of, of pharma was has. I, mean, I know you picked it up again recently, mm. but 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 it's always been excellent. We are going to miss it. Oh, thanks. Let's talk retail. Okay. Uh, which has been your sort of second love at at the Investors Chronicle. Uh, love hate. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not a bit of fun sex to cover in the sense that uh, it's all been going in one direction, yeah. which is the wrong direction yeah. if you're a buyer. Mm. Um, but you've had some sales here. I think you've, you kind of gave up any hope that, that, this, was, that this was something... That you, well, actually, that's not true. There have been some good little... There, uh, nuggets that you yeah. bought that have been good. Yeah, and there are still gems that I would say, even if the share price appreciation hasn't been as dramatic or um, what have you in other sectors, they're still quality companies. It isn't always reflected in the share price, at least in the last couple of years, because we've had such a rocky time since the referendum. But ultimately, my view on those companies is still pretty positive. So. Who, who falls into the positive side of things? Um, Jewel? 
Jules. I've never worked out how to pronounce that. Jules. Jules, yeah. right, okay. Uh, Burberry. I still yes. think I still think they're a good one. Um, Ted has obviously been through the ringer in terms of publicity in the last few months, but I think ultimately they have a business model that is more attractive. I think that's a real shame because actually, as a you know, in terms of the, the, the quality of the business, the quality of the products, I think it's great, and yeah. I think I th- actually think that that the the chief executive mm. uh, saga probably hurt their sales. I think that must have contributed to uh, to some of their problems, yeah. some of the weakness we've seen. They've in had some weakness in Asia as well, which is a, a bit unfortunate. They've been exposed to that in the way, same way, interestingly, that luxury retailers have been. And department stores have been exposed to department stores. And that's been a real real hit for a lot of retailers who were using department stores uh, as a sort of con- on a concessionary basis yeah i have real skepticism when it comes to the concession model um i just think it's a really kind of like dangerous game to be playing at the moment given the state of the high street which probably leads us quite nicely into debenhams, debenhams. right so this is as i say kind of game over i, I would say for for the shares uh suspended cancelled cancelled now are they mm. God, this is moving quickly. No, the, uh, I think Russell, FTSE Russell put out a, a notice yesterday about their um, eventual cancellation. So, yeah, it's over. Um, but there is a bit of a story behind it. I mean, it, it, it didn't necessarily have to go this way. Um, hmm. and, and this is where, of course, the, the sort of... the. The most famous, the most hated man. I like retail. to refer to him as the Donald Trump of the UK high street. The Donald, I like that. <laughs> I've not heard that before. We're talking about Mike Ashley, we of are. course. Um, and he has obviously sunk a lot of money into Debenhams. Um, he saw something in it that perhaps uh, well, other people struggled to see. Yeah, or other people were just wise enough not to go anywhere near. I don't know. What, it, what was he thinking? I don't. I still don't know, John. I don't know. Trying to get inside Mike Ashley's head is uh, is an interesting game to play. But yes, he, he the the number that's floating about in the ether is that he spent around 150 million pounds building up a near 30 percent stake in Debenhams. So mm. he has been particularly proactive in the attempt to save it from administration, which unfortunately is what it entered this week. But this is, so so this is what we what I'm struggling to understand. So he's offered he offered a lot of money. So he'd obviously pumped all this money into the shares already Mm -hmm. and then he was offering more money Mm -hmm. but there was a price to be paid for that and and this seems to be where the the, uh, where the deal potential deal fell down yeah Um, he offered several forms of money several different ways you know um, first he was going to take over the Danish um, side of the business in a sort of like semi-acquisition and that, pay that them. Was, that was, what is it, Magazine du Nord? Yeah, um, that was very odd. Um, it was not going to be enough. He then offered to basically underwrite two different rights issues for them, one for 150 mil, one for 200 mil. Um, he basically offered to give them a loan over Christmas, um, an emergency loan. Uh, they went through their own refinancing, which he said he wanted to be a part of. I mean, several different things have happened. He actually even said that he was considering it was never a firm offer, but a potential takeover offer of 5p a share, which I know sounds like nothing. But when we last were looking at them prior to the suspension of the shares, they were actually at like 3p. So it would have actually been a premium. Quite a chunky premium. Yeah. <laughs> um, and each time what remains of the Debenhams board, because of course he ousted the chief executive and the chairman in a coup last year, um, so what remains of the board and its lenders, because they obviously were having a much bigger voice at this point, kept saying no to his various offers of help because every single time he said, I will give you this, I will give you that, as long as you make me chief executive. 
as long as you make me chief executive. And this was the constant request on his part. I couldn't really understand as much as, you know, he might not be a likeable character or whatever. He might be a lovely character. Who knows? Who knows? That wasn't really the point. I couldn't understand why they were so resistant to have him as chief executive. Was it something about tight control of the shares? They didn't want their chief executive in so much control? You did mention a theory to me, though. Theory, or has this been confirmed, that there was some kind of structure to to what he was proposing that, that could have implications for, well... I guess the lenders more than anything. Yeah. So it's confirmed. The spokesperson for the company did confirm this to me over the phone. Um, They said that each of these arrangements where various loans or, you know, rights issues were being offered and he was to be chief executive had come with, I want to read this out because I don't want to get this wrong, a material adverse information clause, which basically meant that they could appoint him as chief executive and sort of be on the theoretical road to recovery. But if he then went in and did his own due diligence and decided that the situation was worse than he had initially thought, he could walk away from that business, the employees, the pension, the shareholders, the lenders, with zero obligations, zero commitments. And at that point, they would have been forced to what's forced to enter what's known as a disorderly insolvency. What they went into this week was actually a pre-pack administration so that means they can keep running the business yeah. and the lenders essentially still have something to show for it. Yeah, the lenders own it. They bought it straight out of the pre-pack from FTI, who were the administrators. It means that all the employees still keep their jobs. The pensions are still running. The underlying companies are still running. The suppliers don't get hurt in the same way that we saw at House of Fraser. Um, so everything is going okay. And they can now, the lenders have said they intend to sell it to whoever wants to buy it. Um, and then whoever buys it can obviously continue with the restructuring a lot of which they have discussed and the details aren't that different indeed so i mean actually it kind of sounds sensible and you understand why why perhaps mike ashley's overtures were rejected yeah um this is a big company it it has a presence on lots of high streets it's still a popular shop yeah and it employs twenty five thousand people i think what the you know mike ashley has since come out with some various inflammatory remarks about how it all ended because you know it is a game of two halves they have as a board and with their lenders they have decided to prioritize people's jobs and pension and their suppliers and kick their shareholders to the curb in the meantime because the shareholders are going to get zero equity value out of this i I guess there is a valuable lesson there for for any equity investor to, to to understand which is that loans come debts comes first yeah absolutely debts comes first yeah their interests will be served before the shareholders yeah there you go so uh it's, it's a tale of woe obviously 100 percent wipeout um on your cell tip on my cell tip yeah uh which, yeah it's, what's that year, year old maybe it was last June. I actually, June. Uh, Algie and I had quite an interesting conversation because I remember going into the meeting to pitch it and it was 16.5p, which was already a huge dramatic fall from where it had been. And I remember saying to him, you know, I'm, I've had it on a mini cell for ages. We should definitely kick it up into a full cell. But are we doing that thing of like the horse has already bolted? And I can just remember him looking at me and saying, no, because it will go bust. <laughs> he, he, yeah. And I, and I agreed right. with him. Well, you he know. was right. And he's, he's, yeah. he's a shrewd chap, yeah. LG. Um I guess the other lesson to, to learn is that I mean, when Debenhams came to market, there was, there was a bit of uh, uh, people turned their noses up. Yeah. It, it, at the amount of debt it had been left saddled with by its private equity, previous private equity owners. Yeah. A warning to be careful of that kind of business. 
Yeah, it's something we've looked at, obviously, in the magazine in, in various features before about, you know, how many times private equity have effectively sc- screwed over, if you want, for, you know, a less kind of like attractive term, um, eventual shareholders in companies that they float or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this is another example of that, I suppose, which is that did they, the question is, did they float a company that didn't have much of a chance yeah, and I guess, but I guess when they floated, the the online trend hadn't taken hold quite as quite as much as it has now. No, um, and and to give the private equity owners their due, they had spent a lot of the time that Debenhams was off the market trying to rebuild up its distribution and its logistics and try and almost mimic Next model a bit in terms of obviously Next having their directory business and then try and float it. I'm sure with you know hopefully the best of intentions. Who knows? They but, might have floated it a bit early because that was never quite as firing on all cylinders as next no. directory business uh, no. ha- has been over the years. I guess the other thing that they that really caused the problems was the uh, the level of lease liabilities that they had. So so they've got these great big shops, 100 and... God, it's quite how many, how many shops do they have in the end? 166, 166. they have currently. Yeah. Um, they plan to close 50 of those. But a lot of the shops they had were on very long leases. Yeah. So, so they're essentially stuck in shops that weren't weren't covering, you know, paying for themselves. No, absolutely. It was, a, it was a big feature. You probably remember we wrote last year. I think it's called Retail's Property Gamble, if anyone wants to look it up on the website. I suppose it was prompted by the introduction of I4S 16, just gone in January. Um, and we were trying to get ahead of that curve a little bit and look at obviously bringing lease liabilities onto the balance sheet. And a really interesting way to look at that was to look at operating leases amongst the retailers and see kind of, it's a very interesting thing. Cause it, it really does split it down the line in terms of legacy and new so someone like Debenhams for instance we put into contrast with Jules um, and Jules really doesn't have leases sort of beyond five maybe the odd ten year but nothing really beyond that at all. Yeah the one the one that's always stood out for me in terms of really managing its its lease profile well is uh, a company that I don't really shop in very much and I'm, I look at it with amazement that this I think is I know so what successful. You're say. What am I going to say Harriet? If I get it wrong now, that's going to be super embarrassing. Go on. She's own? That's the one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly how they operate. Well, they, don't sure. have, they don't have leases beyond five years. Yeah. It's, and, and it's working for them. Yeah. That mm. is flexibility then. I guess as, a, as an investor in the retail sector, flexibility is what we should be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. You need to be nimble. You need to be able to get out of these leases as soon as possible if they're underperforming, if the stores are underperforming. And it frees up money. You know, you can also renegotiate quicker. You can, you, it just gives you more control of your estate and it leaves you more money to then do exactly what ShoeZone has done, which is invest in the format of those stores and try and make them appealing, make them interesting. You know, if you go into a Debenhams, it's a pretty sad experience you can tell how woefully underinvested they have been um i would say over the last 10 years probably if not more and you know you compare it to someone like shoe zone i know what you're saying you sort of look at it and you think the product itself is not it's not desirable it's not aspirational in the way that ted baker or Uh, and the shops i mean certainly one near me it doesn't look that nice no but i I, I admit to having bought one (laughs) item from there which was a pair of male sandals (laughs) beach sandals i know i know here we go all right as long as you didn't wear them with socks. Oh, of course I wear them with socks. Oh my god, I'm a middle-aged man, Harriet. Oh no. Um, moving swiftly along. <laughs> if it's if it's not a big box, though, I mean, this has been Shoe Zone's big strategy is to move over to what they call big box retailing, which is much more to do with retail parks as opposed to sort of odd high street locations. And they have really invested in those stores. The one that Megan and I went to, you can listen to that online as well. We did a podcast live on on site with the Shoe Zone management team, uh, and they showed us around a big box site. And both Megan and I were pretty impressed, actually. Um, it was a fairly, fairly attractive 
experience. So, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting approach, um, considering that they are sort of lower down the food chain in terms of their product. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating. I, I guess I guess the, the the interesting thing to take from Debenhams now that 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 it's ended up where it's ended up is is these kind of lessons. Um, and uh, yeah, there's plenty more with the magazine that you've uh, you've observed over the years. Mm. Let's talk about another major retailer that found itself in the wars a few years ago and it's now looking good yeah tesco tesco uh, i like tesco i was gonna say where to start um no, I, I, no, I, I, let's start as, as a customer okay this uh business has really changed i would i would say um in the shopping experience which i i, I think is one of the most important things mm-hmm. um Oh, uh, since its troubles, you know, maybe what, sort of three or four years ago? Maybe, maybe 2014, longer. accounting scandal. That long ago. Yes, I know. Crikey. We're all getting so old. And at the time, you know, I, I remember Sainsbury's being a much nicer experience. Mm-hmm. I think that I think they've reversed. I do um, too. I agree. Um, Tesco, I think, obviously Dave Lewis came in after the accounting scandal and took the reins and they laid out these targets um, a lot of which hinged around sort of operating margins and where they wanted them to be by FY 2020. Well, they've, you know, in the second half of last year, so the target is for them to be between 3.5 and 4%. Which sounds very meagre, yeah, but this is food retail. It's food retail. What can you do? Um, we're not in Burberry right now. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a food retailer. It's pretty, it's admirable. And it would have been, you know, it does mark a, a serious improvement. So, if you look at the second half of last year, these are annual results, but they did break them down into two halves, so you could see an acceleration. In the second half, the operating margin was at 3.96. So what's, they've already gone through the bottom end of that range. What's driving that? What are they doing that's 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 bringing their strategy to life? A whole host of things. Uh, what's very interesting is pricing, because they have actually got more competitive on pricing which normally damages your margin not if you've got the volume exactly so what it's actually done is improve volume now volume to me isn't just a question of pricing you also have to do other things around that you have to make the shopping experience more enjoyable you have to make the stores look nice you have to make expand the product ranges you have to appeal to more people all of which they've done at the same time they've also been driving down costs they've had massive targets around that massive synergies and of course topping it all off is Booker. Booker. One of my, one of my favourite... Fav- I shouldn't use that word. No, you shouldn't. you should not have favourites Critical when it comes journalists, to come investing. On. <laughs> well, it's just a good company. It You've is got a good to company. Admire, I always admired it. Yeah, maybe that's the, the better way to put it. Yeah, and I do um, start the third paragraph with, ah, Booker. Quite right. <laughs> quite right. I, and, I mean, this, this deal was met with some scepticism when it was announced. Yeah. Uh, there were, of course, worries that it wouldn't get through the Composition and Markets Authority, which it did, largely unscathed, unlike uh, Sainsbury's uh, overtures on Asda. Um, what has this done for the business? What has this done for Tesco as a, as a whole? What it's really done is drive the top line. Uh, Booker's biggest sort of... Um plus or advantage is that it's always had very consistent sales growth, particularly on a like-for-like basis. And they've always had fairly robust margins as well, both of which feed quite nicely into Tesco's long-term targets. I do do quite a sort of um, hefty breakdown of quite what's gone into the sales because you will see that a big chunk of it is down to Booker. Um, I think you've got something like 15% um, overall and 115 of it comes from Booker. So, you know, it's... Uh, it has a huge role to play, I would say, in this overall kind of like 
road to recovery. Yeah, and it, and it, it obviously brought new markets for Tesco Absolutely. in uh, wholesaling, essentially, to, to, to small retailers and uh, food service companies. Yeah, I mean, it basically turned Tesco into an A to B supply chain because they can now, as you say, supply as many of itself and its other customers Um and I mean, the the reason that people thought it might not get through the CMA, of course, is because they worried about how much control the entire company might exert on the rest of the sector. I th- they were a bit, they were quite worried about the uh, convenience format as yeah. well. Yeah, well, obviously Tesco Express is a is a big convenience estate for Tesco, and then. Booker owns Budgeons and Londies. So there is quite a lot of crossover in that. And people did think that disposals would be a prerequisite of that deal going through. There were a few. There were, there were a few, but not, not huge, huge numbers. Wasn't material. Um, is Booker growing under Tesco's ownership? Do we know that? Yeah, it is growing. Um, it's interesting as well, because obviously at the time, I think you and I both agreed that another big um, advantage of this deal was that Tesco was going to get Charles Wilson onto its board. He's been unwell, hasn't he? Yeah, sadly it didn't happen. He hasn't been well, so he's had to step back entirely, and that shook the market actually. It's mm. interesting, sometimes these management changes can have very little effect and sometimes they have a, a big effect on the shares, and in this case it did. And the shares were rocked a little bit by that. But seemingly everything is going well. Dave Lewis is is a good manager. Um, we shouldn't take that away from him. He's obviously ex-Unilever as well, so he does come from this big sort of consumer back so he knows the, big, the industry. Big supplies to, big supplies to Tesco. Cool. Absolutely. Um, people will remember as well after the referendum and the sort of sterling crisis, he uh, he really put the mockers on Unilever not to get crazy with their prices as well. Marmite Gate, I think, was the... Uh, oh, yes, indeed. ...was the scandal. I so, think I dashed out and bought some alternative, but it was disgusting. <laughs> I carried on pl- buying Marmite. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, there's no Bovril in this house. I guess the, big, uh, the question for shareholders... Always, I mean, we have the shares on a buy mm-hmm. because the question is always, what does the future have in store? The grocery market is still tough. Yeah, uh, there are still quite aggressive comp- competitors out there in the form of uh, Little and Audi in particular. Who, mm-hmm. you know, ta- I mean, I, and I've admitted this many times. I, lo- I, I, I love a little. <laughs> I love a little. Um, but they, but they seem to be rising to this challenge. They are. They've launched Jacks, which is their version of a discount retailer. <laughs> Have you I'm, been into one? I've seen the pictures. I don't quite. I was going to say because there's no, only it's no little. No, there are only a few pilot sort of stores in operation. They aren't nationwide yet. Um, but you know, I'm, I reserve judgment until they've been rolled out more more heavily. They weren't really massively discussed in these results. I don't think they have much of an impact yet. But it's interesting, at least, to see from a strategic point of view them going after that market. Sainsbury's tried that as well. It didn't really work. Netto, they, they yeah, Netto, yeah. Bought or bought a, did a JV? I can't I think, remember what it was. It was a JV, I'm going to say JV. It? I think it was a JV. Yeah. Sorry, listeners. We'll check on that. But, um, uh, but no, no I, I, it was very short lived. It was whatever it was. Um, but Sainsbury's, I always feel, spreads itself a bit too thin and tries to be one thing to everyone you know if you look at it, it's like taste the different ranges and stuff it's trying to target that premium customer and then with netto it's trying to go the other way i feel like tesco at least is it sort of knows what it does well and then it tries to expand into that lower lower sort of demographic which obviously is proving massively popular so we'll see how that turns out so that's one thing but of course the grocery sector will be massively shaped by what happens with Sainsbury's and Asda, because that will fundamentally change the market share dynamics of that entire sector. So that will be the big sort of catalyst for the sector in the next year or so. But I'm... any more any more clarity on what's happening there? <laughs> uh, no, other than to say it's in phase two investigation now, um, and 
basically it doesn't look very likely is what I'm going to say. Um, there are already the CMA has outlined a number of issues it has with it, obviously to do with diminishing competition. There's far too much overlap in the estate, basically. But we always said that when we've discussed it on this podcast and in the magazine, we've always said it's much more of a kind of flat horizontal deal than Tesco Booker ever was. Just, so. feels, just feels very defensive to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a scale deal and. I always feel like the regulator has problems with those sorts of uh, mergers. So Indeed, indeed. Um, you didn't write it this week. Should we talk very briefly about ASOS, mm-hmm. which I... Have I pronounced it correctly? Yeah. Hey! <laughs> my kids always tell me off of saying ASOS. Yeah, it's ASOS. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you, didn't, uh, you didn't write it. Tom Rose, Tom Dines picked it up this week. Tom's yeah. going to be taking over the retail beat he in is. the future. And he's doing WH Smith today. So, uh, yeah, the transition is, uh, is happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the face of it, these results look horrible, but the shares rose. I don't get that. What happened? They held guidance. Right. Uh, that's pretty much it. Um, Isn't that like one of those, oh, the first half was terrible, but the second half is going to be great type guidances? <laughs> when I was helping Tom with it yesterday, I said to him, the big thing about retailers is that with certain ones that have been through the ringer, which ASOS has over the last year, if they don't have a profit warning, the shares will go up <laughs> because the market is relief rally. That's all it is. Um, and it did happen yesterday at ASOS. As you say, they've had this absolute horror show in the US where they have this new Atlanta based sort of warehouse which is taking over a lot of the distribution they basically completely understaffed it so that when it launched they couldn't they couldn't serve the customers so this huge backlog of orders uh that's not going to come through till h2 so these are only interims so we have yet to see the full damage of that but management did hold their guidance it's like well if they thought that it was going to have a hugely detrimental effect in the second half they would have had to adjust that guidance and they didn't what have they just done Hired hired a load of people then yeah basically <laughs> which which will drive their costs up nicely so um i wait and see what kind of happens with that one i think it might be a bit of a horror show and this is a punt i mean i have very little sort of evidence to suggest this but i wouldn't be surprised if we didn't have another profit warning before the end of the year well that that seems like a good uh good note to sign off on your Aww. final prediction on the podcast <laughs> asos profit warning yeah before the second half well before the end of the before year before the yeah. end of the year yeah yeah, I, I must admit, I don't like. I don't like it when I see companies having a bad, a bad half, and then, and then saying it's all fine. We'll make it up. In a well, yeah, half. exactly. You're kind of I, setting yourself up for failure a lot of the time. Um, and ASOS has a lot to lose. You know, at the end of the day, the shares are so expensive and so vulnerable to any kind of bad news. So. Not as expensive as they were. <laughs> well, no, but if well, you, on a PE rate well, basis, they are because the profits have fallen so much. Of course, but, but in terms of the overall market capitalization. Yeah, there is not that. As, not as expensive as they were. But if you would like to pay seventy times forward earnings, be my guest. <laughs> no, I think I'll give that a miss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Harriet. Thank you for all of your efforts, uh, the Investors Chronicle, over the last how long has it? Five years. Five and a half years. Five and a half years. I know. My goodness, <laughs> where has the time gone? I know. Hang on, what's going on here? And sync. Bye bye bye. Oh wow, that's, that's a first. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Anyway, thank you, Harriet. And uh, let me just talk you through what else we've done in this week's magazine. The, the cover feature, uh, which you've also contributed to, uh, in your with your farmer hat on, uh, mm-hmm. is the Income Majors USA. We're looking at some of the biggest dividend paying shares uh, in uh, in America. Not a market known for, uh, for for income, but actually there's some there's some fantastically large payers out there, including AbbVie. Mm. You covered, yeah. Which has, uh, as we all remember Shire tried to get their hands on or was it the other way around? Other way around. Other way around. Of course yeah. it was. Yeah. But um, it was blocked. Yes. Tax inversion deal, wasn't it? Yeah. 
those, Good times. those were the days. Uh, yeah, so that's all changed with Trump and his his kind of new tax regime. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, anyway, very interesting feature there. It's slightly delayed John Barron column this week, along with John Rosier, our diarist. Your last sector focus as the sector's editor, mm-hmm. uh, written by Alex Newman on Palladium. Flurry of results. Going to start starting to quiet down now. Eh? Yeah, uh, thank God. Yeah, well, you're not here to worry about it. <laughs> so, in fact, we moved to, we moved next week as well. You're missing that too. Yeah, we're packing our boxes. We are packing today. Off to uh, off to St Paul's next week in our new home. Lots of uh, good stuff in the um, personal finance and funds section. Taha is looking in particular at the what he calls the older manager problem. Great funds, but with with experienced heads. The experienced heads that you need, but there's always the risk that they retire. Lots of news, apart from uh, in fact we went through most of it. But uh, Alex Newman's looking at oil uh, and the trajectory of the oil price, which is a, a, a constant guessing game. Anyway, there you go. Pick up the magazine. All good news agents. Income Majors USA. The prospect for America's top dividend shares. And just to say one more time, thanks for all your work, Harriet, and uh, we're going to miss you. Yeah, thanks, John. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back again, uh, hopefully next week, uh, assuming we can. Uh, we don't have any sort of new home technical issues. See you later. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.